Hello and welcome to Switzer TV Property, I'm Peter Switzer. On tonight's show, I talk to one of the country's greatest property players, a man who's provided billions of dollars to Australians to buy homes, Mark Burris of Yellow Brick Road. What's he seeing? Is the property market in trouble or will we dodge a house price collapse bullet? And then we catch up with the legendary Melbourne luxury apartment developer, Tim Gurner, who's just secured a big funding shot in the arm, which says a lot about the future of his business. And then economist, Dr. Andrew Wilson, who says property prices in Western Sydney are, wait for it, booming with a capital B. That's the show, let's just kick off with Mark Burris. Well, if someone knows what's going on in the real estate industry, it would be Mark Burris, clearly one of the, the most significant lenders in the country. He'd be watching the real estate uh, sector like a hawk. Mark Burris, thanks for joining us. Great, Pete. How are you going? Excellent, mate. So for people who don't understand Yellow Brick Road and all the other related businesses, tell us about the magnitude of your lending in Australia. Uh, well, on average, on any month, probably for the last, uh, well, definitely for the last five or six years, we would do an excess, we would settle in excess of a billion dollars worth of loans every month hmm. to people who are buying properties or some, and or refinancing, of course. So uh, we run a, a book uh, north $57 billion of mortgages under management. Um, we lend our own money as well. We have our own programs. We have pro our program is with one of the world's largest hedge funds in debt. That's a mob called Magnetar, so we half own that entity. Um, so yeah, we, we're a fairly significant player. We're probably number two in of the second largest super aggregator in the country. Um, that means that any brokers can't go direct to banks. They've got to go through a super one of the aggregators and we're one of what they call the four super aggregators. Yeah. We probably not, we pro probably rank number two in, today in terms of volume. Yeah. We'd have 2000, brokers across Australia right now who feed into us every week. Yeah, and, and the broker um, sector compared to the banks, they're, they're now writing more loans than the bank's uh, 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 loans offices, is that right? Correct, so the broker industry, which we're, as I said, the second largest aggregator, um, deliver around somewhere between, you know, runs, goes up and out, but somewhere between 57 and 60% of all loans that end up in the banks with a bank come from the broker se sector, which is us. And as, as you said, or as I said earlier, I'm with the second largest. So yeah, we, we, we bank more borrowers than the banks do themselves. Yeah. So therefore you understanding where house prices and the sector is going, is critically important to your your business plans. 100%, and we, we, we got good diversity in that we cover the whole of the country, less so in Perth, yeah. um, but definitely the Eastern States, Tasmania included, um, that is an Eastern state, I guess, but uh, Tasmania included, ACT, um, uh, South Australia, we, we cover all that. So we socio-demographically, -demo we cover most income layers and most um, demographic layers, um, you know, like from first home buyers right through to retirees or people who are making investment portfolios. So we cover most of that. Mm. So Mark, how are the home loan borrowers of Australia doing right now? Well, we haven't seen any spike in arrears or delinquencies, but that of course um, does not include what's gonna happen now that the banks have um, stopped 
um, allowing automatically people to get um, uh, relief from paying their mortgage. So six months ago, you remember that the uh, the government, along with the banking sector, um, announced that um, if you're got you're having trouble paying your mortgage off, um, you you just apply and you can get a six month relief. Um, and, uh, and 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 that that was a great thing. Well, that's now expired. So. But anyone who got relief during that six month period, we don't know whether they're gonna actually be suffering stress or not going forward. Mm. That six month relief has just finished. There is an extension for some people, but you don't, it's not an automatic extension now. You actually have to go back and start talking about it and uh, you know, have, to, have to prove to the, to the bank or your lender that you can't afford to continue to make your payments and you want further relief until sometime next year. So, the the arrears and delinquencies that is those people who have missed who are more than 30 days in arrears on their mortgage in this country has not increased but what we're not factoring into that at the moment is the number of people who actually sought hardship relief from the banking sector over the last six months which has just literally expired this week okay i'm going to ask you a question that a lot of normal people would be thinking could there be a cohort in that group who asked for relief who actually did okay over that period like they when they asked for relief they were really scared then along came JobKeeper and their business and the business that they worked in whether that was their own business or somebody else's actually like for example cafes in suburb the suburban areas where you and I live they've been killing it but in March and April they might have thought they're going to be going down the, the, the mine and they may well have asked for home loan relief and really didn't need it is it possible there's a cohort of people who actually have probably saved up a whole pile of money and when they go back to paying their loans again, they're going to be comfortable? Well, that's 100% correct. So just like the people, a lot of people who withdrew the $10,000 or the $20,000 mm. out of the super, they did it because they just thought, wow, I better do this because it's available because who knows whether I'm going to have a job or not. Yeah. But it hasn't turned out that way. Um, most of these people, you know, a lot of the people that we're talking about, by the way, you know, we're talking about, there was hundreds of billions of dollars of mortgages, that's the principal amount. So people representing those amounts um, who actually made the application. But I also know that not, not very many of them kept going for the whole six months. A lot of them have actually started to pay back their principal and interest and mm. all gone on to interest only with, in some cases. But a lot of them already started that. So they haven't waited till this week to see whether or not the bank's gonna give them a tap on the shoulder and say, you better start paying us back now. So a lot of people actually realised once they either started getting JobKeeper or their business started to pick up, like you just suggested, some of those businesses did quite well during this period, although they were really scared back mm. in March. Um, they all actually went back in, they were all gone back to the banks because they're pretty smart. These people know that, you know, you're not getting, hardship relief doesn't mean, oh, you don't have to make any more payments for six months. It means you don't have to pay us for the next six months, but what you don't pay is we're going to add it onto your principal. So you're going to actually owe us more. You're going to, over time, you're going to pay us more. Yeah. People work that stuff out pretty fast. Yeah. So most people that we know of who applied around our environment have actually gone back onto paying that, making the repayments. Yeah. Most of them. Yeah. There are, there's a small, small cohort who haven't. Now we don't know whether that's because, um, you know, they're just still nervous or we don't know whether that's because they've lost a job. We don't know yet. And that's just starting now that that analysis is just starting right now. Yeah. But it's not a huge amount. No. And you would have thought the person who's lost their job and or they know their business is a zombie business have probably put their house on the market. Yeah, well, I, that, that's probably right. And all their investments, they're all they've sold, you know, excess stuff. For example, they might sold their holiday home or they would have sold some of their investment properties. Um, so I think. Our, 
it's anecdotal right now. I'm, we don't, I don't no. have data on this. No. But, and anecdotally right now, we're not nervous. We are not nervous about a massive spike in recent delinquencies over the next three months. Yeah. Um, and, and nor is the banking sector. And you know these are these are relative games too, because even if there is a, a spike, a spike for us is it's not hard to have a spike for us because Australia is so low in its arrears and delinquencies relative to the rest of the world. It's sub one percent of the total of all mortgages in the market, which we're talking about um, in excess of a trillion dollars worth of mortgages in excess. So one percent of that's not very much. So we're we're in, I think we're in good shape, and the Reserve Bank feels. I mean. More importantly, the Reserve Bank who does do the analytics feels as though we're in good shape. You know, they do talk about future shock all the time, Reserve Bank. And one of the things that they seem to be relatively um, relaxed about is future shock in relation to the quality of the mortgages that people like the banks and us hold on our books. The yep. banks have good analytics around this stuff. Okay. Now, knowing you as I do, um, like for example, when a referee makes a very bad decision against the Roosters or something goes wrong in the surf club, you could occasionally use the F word, but you wouldn't do it you know, in front of women or children, Mark, because you're an old-fashioned no. kind of guy. But, but when Victoria went into lockdown, did the F word cross your mind? 100%. Um, <laughs> I thought it might have. You know, and I, and I did throw that F bomb around and actually wrote, I used the F bomb in some of my uh, things that I write up on my LinkedIn account, et cetera, and mm. Instagram and various other places. Yeah, but like, you know, like Pete, because I'm totally frustrated with the way um, Andrews is dealing with this. I mean, I, and I don't want to sound like I'm a, a Paul Murray acolyte or something like that, but, right. but I, I have to tell you, like, it's way over the top. I mean, I, I, I'm a data guy. I like evidence. I like proper evidence. So, you know, if someone says you can only have 10 people to a funeral, well, tell me why it's 10 instead of 11 or 12, or and what are you working that on a an average square metre space of a funeral parlour, or what, where are you working this stuff out from? And, and there was a lot of this... Um, uh, for me, it looked like what in the beginning, I get it. No one knew how to do it properly. Then over time, we've all learned a lot of stuff. The data has told us a lot of things. You don't, we, we should now, we should now be, and they should have been for the last three or four months, especially for the second wave down in Victoria, they should have been laying down proper, um, judicious and well-argued reasons why they Put in blanket policies, and that in itself is uh, a nonsense because you therefore, if you ha if you have the data, you don't need a blanket policy. You can be doing spot policies, more like what we've done here in New South Wales. So, um, I'm pretty. I'm, I reckon it's ugly down there, and uh, and I don't. And I think, and I'm, in my view, Andrews and his government have got a lot to answer for. Although probably nothing's going to happen from this so-called independent inquiry. Mm. So, from your point of view, of course, you you would care about. Melburnians, because there were a lot of Greeks in Melbourne, and uh, <laughs> you must have some family there. But we've all got friends in Melbourne, and we know it's really tough. But also from your business point of view, um, you've got if, if you're going to see some rises in delinquencies and arrears, it's probably going to be more in Melbourne than any other state in the country. That's what we expect. Yes, right. um, we also expect a little bit up in Queensland too, because the unemployment number is pretty ordinary in um, Queensland as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, or probably a better way of putting it, the new employment numbers that we've been getting on a national average, Queensland has been a laggard, so they've been behind. Yeah. Victoria's led the way in terms of, the, of being behind. So as a result of that, if you were going to um, have an expectation of delinquencies and, and or just arrears, 
more than 30 days, Victoria's a place I would first expect it to happen. And you're right, I do have um, lots of Greek friends down there. And but, well, I've also got nearly 50, 58 branches of Yellow Brick Road down there. Yeah. And some of the branches are doing quite well, though. What's interesting here, Pete, um, like if you take my branch in Ballarat, that's doing really well because the first home buyers have received a whole lot of yeah. incentives by the federal government. Mm. There are state government incentives too around stamp duty, et cetera, and cash payments. Um, so Ballarat is run off its feet at the moment in terms of first home buyers. Yep. We're also seeing um, Victorians are pretty smart and um, we're also seeing a lot of Victorians realise, well, hang on a minute, um, maybe my income is a bit lower. It's no longer, I can no longer be complacent in relation to the interest rate I'm paying on my mortgage. Because Australians, generally speaking, are really apathetic, or that's probably not the right word, complacent. They go, oh, well, the interest rate's 3.5%, that's pretty low. I'm earning enough money, I'm, I'm fine, I'm sweet, I can afford it. But what's actually happening in Victoria, where we're getting most of our refinance inquiry, is that um, our, through our branches, is that Victorians are going to say, hang on a minute, is there something I can trim the sales on? Well, I can trim the sales maybe on my mortgage. What's my interest rate on paying my mortgage? I'm mm. paying a three plus something. They go on to a branch like ours, and that, no doubt this is happening across the board to all the brokers down there in Victoria, whoever they operate under, and people are refinancing into mid twos for yeah. owner-occupied available rate or low twos for fixed rate principal and interest, which is crazy. Um, you know, like that's a really low yeah. rate, 2.19, 2.2. And some of them are getting $4,000 cash back. So, they get cash in their pocket, they get a much lower interest rate, and for every 100 basis points, for every 25 basis points, but these guys are saving 100 basis points, for every 25 basis points on an average loan down in Victoria, you're saving about 50 bucks a month. So over a year is quite good. If you multiply that by four, because you're getting 100 basis points, that's a couple hundred bucks a month. That's pretty good stuff. Mm. Um, you know, and, uh, it may, it may, and if you get $4,000 in your, in, your, in your kick, that's pretty good too. So. It's very compelling. And so we're seeing a lot of refi business down there, Pete. And what we're hoping that this is going to do is actually take a bit of pressure off people's ability to make their mortgage payments on a monthly basis or weekly basis, whatever they're doing. And also there is the offer that people can go and look at interest only for a while too. Yeah. So, you know, if they're doing interest only, which generally speaking is a lower repayment per month as opposed to principal and interest, um, that actually relieves relieves their um or, or takes them away further away from going into arrears so we we think there's enough things out there right now to ameliorate any downturn in victoria but that doesn't mean we won't have it but th there's enough out there and people have become really aware of i better go and talk to my broker i better go and talk to my bank mm. people don't mind asking for help at the moment which is a great thing i mean that's something good to come out of COVID. yeah in yeah. Victoria, yeah. I could ask for help, you know. Yeah. Without a doubt. One last question, and it involves one of your uh, Bankstown buddies, Paul Keating, ripped into the Reserve Bank today. Uh, I'm sure you saw the story. Is the Reserve Bank always slow to the party, Paul? Um, Mark? <laughs> well, I had lunch with Paul, uh, it may have been this time last year. He was at, went to my school, actually, and yeah. uh, like he was a superstar at our school um, and uh, he had with him a, a copy of a newspaper with something handwritten on it going back to 1995 where it showed that he was the guy that um, actually deregulated the banking system yeah. and allowed people like me to come in and make a whole lot of money, <laughs> um, which is amazing. He remembered to bring something that he wrote a note on in 1995. But Paul's one of the smartest guys in the room. Yeah. There's no doubting that, he really is. Um, but I think he's being unfair to the Reserve Bank. I think our Reserve Bank has done a brilliant job. They single-handedly took themselves to a position where they couldn't go any further. 
you know, like there's no headroom left for them. They single-handedly did this for the country. They now need fiscal policy, which I understand our illustrious um, treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, is going to announce, I think on the 12th of October, he's going to come out with a new big spending budget, but they need fiscal policy help. It's, you know, the reserve, the monetary policy, which Reserve Bank, as you know, doesn't work. They can't work on their own. They've got to work with fiscal policy. The two have got to go hand in hand. Yeah. So, Paul, I think, um, with the greatest respect, might be being a bit tough on our Reserve Bank governor. He's, I think he's done a great job. Yeah. I, I in my piece today on Switzer Daily, I said, I'd rather get stuck into Dan Andrews first, so I could argue that he's not, uh, not one-eyed and biased, but I haven't seen him rip into Dan Andrews yet. There's not much chance of that happening, as you know. <laughs> me. Um, but that's a bit like Paul Murray ripping into the Prime Minister. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's true. That's true. All right, mate. Great. Thanks for joining us. Mark Burris, you're one of the best. See you, Pete. All the best, mate. Well, we know the property sectors have a few challenges. And of course, Victoria in particular, because of the lockdown, have had more challenges than most. Now, one of Victoria's most uh, celebrated uh, developer of luxury apartments is Tim Gurner. You can't go around Melbourne, but without seeing Gurner TM everywhere. Uh, and uh, the news came out today that a significant funder has thrown a fair bit of money behind uh, Tim Gurner and his business. Tim, welcome to the program. How are you, Peter? Thanks for having me. My pleasure, mate. For people who don't know the famous Tim Gurner of Melbourne, just explain what your business does, Tim. Yeah, definitely not famous, firstly. Um, so, Peter, we're a residential developer, sort of eastern seaboard of Australia at the moment. We're going to look to expand that a little bit at the moment. Very much focused on the sort of the upper end of the market. We just did a big project called St. Moritz last year, which was a you know, $500 million ultra-luxury project. Really focused on the inner ring of Melbourne, Sydney um, and Brisbane over the last sort of seven years. I established the business in 2013, had another couple of businesses before that, but we established this brand to really try to take everything in luxury living to a whole new level. Yeah. Now, Tim, um, what has the Victorian lockdown done to your business, at least in the short term? Look, Pete, it's really interesting. We came into it, we're in a very fortunate position. We just finished three big buildings. We finished a large one last year in Brisbane as well. So we were in a very fortunate position. We just cashed up quite a bit and we're able to sit back. It was not definitely no skill, just pure coincidence that we landed that at the right time. So we've obviously had about 12 weeks of pretty good shutdowns down here, as you're aware of. And it's been really interesting. I've got to say, I'm probably one of the only people in Melbourne who's absolutely loved it. Um, I've got a property, I've got a farm, and I've been down there with my family since school holidays. And it's been the most amazing thing for me because I'm not sitting in 16 meetings a day and we've been able to really think strongly and strategically about the business and what it means moving forward. And it's actually created more opportunities for us than we've had in the last seven or eight years. So for us, it's been fantastic, I've got to say. All right, mate. So, but of course, some developers would be in trouble, wouldn't they, in the sense that they, they haven't sold their projects and there must be a lot of reluctance from some Melbourneites just because of the whole negativity of the lockdown. Yeah, I should clarify. I mean, the market, there is no market right now, right? Obviously, not, not only is there no market, you're actually not allowed to do open. So there is genuinely no market. Um, so I'm not, I'm not talking about our business positioning. I think the market is, you know, we don't know where the market's at is probably the most important thing. But I think, Peter, like, you know, is, you know we, we've been running a pretty high cycle for a long time, right? So we, 
what we've just announced today isn't off the back of COVID and nothing to do with COVID. Um, I was pretty sure, you know, we've got to remember that it was in 2017 really was the peak of the boom. It was sort of 2018 in June in Melbourne when the state government changed the stamp duty rules that everything changed in Melbourne off the plan. Selling got incredibly hard. That was over 18 months. Sorry, it's over two years ago now. So it's not like this is a new thing, COVID. We were already in a pretty pretty tough patch um, in the Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane property markets. And COVID's just come along and obviously given a bit of a smack as well. So it's an interesting time. I mean, in Melbourne, I'm still incredibly bullish, obviously, about Melbourne. I love Melbourne and think it's an incredible city that will come back even stronger. What we're looking at in the next 12 months is extremely unknown. And I've got to say, I'm not very, I'm not overly optimistic about the economy in the next 12 months. I think that we're going to see quite a bit of fallout from what's happening right now. Obviously, JobKeeper and JobSeeker have done a great job at keeping things propped up. But I think when they're pulled away, there's going to be a lot of scars showing underneath. Okay. Well, you know, I'm always more optimistic than you. Maybe I should be the developer, but it doesn't matter. Uh, I certainly think that if Victoria hadn't had its problems, I think you, you could have been afforded to be a little bit more optimistic. But i got to admit to you, I don't know what the implication of Victoria's lockdown is going to be. And yeah. it could be negative. I hope it's not, but it could be. But, mate, given that, the fact that Qualitas has now found $150 million for your organisation, and they, it's, a, it's described as an equity allocation. For my viewers, what's that mean? Yeah, so Qualitas established an opportunity fund, um, I think it was about 18 months ago, to go and acquire assets that they thought might be distressed. And I think they're of a similar view of me, which is the, the I guess there's, the, there's multiple markets, Peter. As you know, I think, let's be, just be clear, the residential housing market, I think, is incredibly strong in Melbourne and I don't think it'll be touched. The apartment market at the moment without the international students here is tough. We need to get the international students back. But the thing that I think is going to take the biggest hits is the development sites. Development sites have been overpriced for at least three or four years, been achieving stupid prices that are unrealistic. I mean, we've had particularly international buyers that aren't educated in Australian, the way we do business, come in and pay too much for sites. And I believe myself and I think Qualitas also believe that there's going to be opportunities that come out of that. So they raised these funds. They were talking to a few different people and I think they, they obviously made the decision that they wanted to really focus with one. Um, so they had the money sitting there in the opportunity fund and we begun discussions in February um, and we concluded a deal only a couple of weeks ago, which is very exciting. So does that mean that they've taken a, a, a portion of the, uh, ownership in your business? No, not at all. No one will take a portion of my ownership, Peter. Yeah. Uh, no, 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 very much. It's, it's very much deal by deal. So they can say no to deals if it doesn't meet their parameters, as I can as well. So it's, very, it's, it's still discretionary for Qualitas, 100%. The deal still has to stack up. It has to be the right thing and it's got to work. It's just an amount of capital that we can now go out and aggressively look for sites. Now, now we know that the big four banks have been recruited by the government to rescue the economy. Yeah. Uh, and you've always had pretty good working relationships with yeah. at least one, maybe two banks. Yeah. Has, has it become harder purely because they're allocating money elsewhere at the moment? Yeah, to be honest for us, no, Peter. I, 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 we actually just closed the deal just recently and the, the LVRs and, and interest rates are actually lower than they would have, would have been 12 months ago. LVRs higher and the interest rates lower. So I think the banks are definitely focused on the quality products, quality buyer profile and developers. So I think for those guys, funding is still very good. Obviously, I think if it's, if it's a project that's not quite right, not with the right pre-sale cover, then it's probably very difficult. But so far, we've, we've seen probably better lending conditions. Okay. To, for, for people who don't really understand your business model, 
you know, it's really important because you, you build high-end apartments, which are often bought by investors who might rent, a, rent them out for four or five years before they eventually move into them. Yeah. Has the coronavirus badly affected that market, marginally affected it or not affected it at all? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'm definitely not pessimistic. I guess, Peter, my position for the next nine to 12 months is so unknown for everyone and we don't know what it looks like, so I'm nervous about that. But my 24-month view on Melbourne in particular is extremely positive and probably more positive than ever, particularly for investors, because we have this weird situation where we're going to have a government that has an economy that's going to be struggling. As soon as immigration is allowed back in, we know they are going to have to absolutely pump immigration. There is, they're going to have no option but to go back to yeah. the right era of 450,000 people a year, and that's what we expect to happen. When that happens in, let's I don't think it'll be next year, but I think it'll be 2022, the starts of construction that are happening now in residential construction is virtually zero. There'll be almost nothing start construction in the next 12 months, and that will create the most incredible undersupply of apartments. I've been preaching for the last three or four years, I think we're in a massive undersupply already. Yes, vacancy rates have shot up right now, but when you actually look at the data, it's really concentrated to the CBD, South Bank and Docklands. If you go to North Fitzroy or Collingwood or we just finished Spanish Club, we had 500 people lined up for our first rental inspection. We had 10 applications per apartment. So in the suburban locations where it's Australian locals renting, the rental market's still very strong. In the CBD where 60,000 international students went home, of course it's going to be challenging, but they're going to come back. So I think in two years' time, there's never been a better time to be settling apartments. Our sophisticated investors who understand immigration and population are still buying, and they're the ones that will do really, really well. So, so the, the bottom line then is there may be a, a short-term window of buying opportunities for the high-end type products that you sell, but, yeah. over, uh, but over time, you believe that uh, there'll be a significant comeback? Oh, I think there's no question in two, three, four years, there's going to be a boom. There'll be another property boom. There's no question. I think we all know it's simply supply and demand. We know that demand will increase when they pump immigration because we can have no option to do that. And supply has absolutely fallen off a cliff. So I see no option but to see a significant jump. And I don't know if it's 2022 or 2023, but there's no question in my mind it's coming. Our final question, mate, um, the St. Moritz development. Where are you at with that? Are you halfway through it, just starting or what? No, we're, we're about halfway through. So it's very exciting. We've just got to second top level of one of the towers, about halfway through the other towers. I've got to say, Peter, it's pretty exciting. I had a walk through yesterday and it's, it's looking sensational. So I can't wait to show you through. When do you think it'll be finished? We'll be finished at the end of next year. So we're targeting November and we might be a little bit early. Hmm. All right, well, good luck with it all. And uh, let's hope the economy rebounds quickly and uh, you can keep on uh, doing the developing that employs a lot of people and creates a decent size of GDP for Melbourne. Yeah, exactly. Thanks, Pete. I really appreciate it. Cheers, mate. Well, earlier this week, I read Dr. Andrew Wilson's assessment of what's going on in Western Sydney, and he used the word boom. I, I had to talk to him after that. Andrew Wilson, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, uh, Peter. Yes, uh, I guess that's a word we haven't heard for a while, but uh, maybe it's just creeping into the lexicon in terms of the Sydney housing market generally mm. at the moment, and um, clearance rates are up. Uh, price numbers of sales are up, prices are rising, and uh, 
it really is a lot different to, uh, I guess, the last time we spoke when we still had that air of uncertainty mm. regarding the outlook for our housing markets. Yeah. Now, Andrew, you were the chief economist at Domain and you've now yes. got My Housing Market, which yeah. effectively is a research um, uh, yes. uh, business. Uh, are you are you surprised that Western Sydney prices are doing so well? Well, one of the key drivers of the market at the moment, Peter, are first home buyers. Of course, we know Sydney is the most expensive capital city market, and um, value is always front and centre in terms of what first home buyers look for. And there's no doubt the further out you go in Sydney, the more uh, I guess affordable properties are. And I think a lot of first home buyers have taken advantage of uh, changes to the stamp duty uh, ceiling in the New South Wales government and uh, uh, are looking to purchase properties in uh, further out uh, into the western suburbs where there's still uh, quite good value. But when we're talking about the western suburbs, Peter, other than affordability, there are other drivers that I believe will become significant factors in demand for western suburbs property. Uh, we know that vacancy rates ha have increased sharply in inner suburban or inner city Sydney for apartments. Uh, we know the reasons why, of course. Uh, there's been a lot of new supply come in. We're seeing Airbnb switch from holiday accommodation into that more permanent accommodation. Of course, that affects inner city Sydney uh, rentals. But what we are seeing conversely to that, Peter, is a, a sharpening of vacancy rates for houses in Sydney. Uh, and I think this is a factor dri dri uh, driven by the change in lifestyle, the work from home environment. And I think that we're seeing uh, a higher demand now for houses in the rental market, uh, driven by uh, the need for more space. And I think also one of those factors is that we no longer have that connection to the CBD that we had previously. So perhaps um, families particularly are looking to outer suburban uh, locations uh, because they're not, they don't necessarily have that same need to be close to the CBD. So if we start getting a more demand for rental properties in the outer suburbs, western suburbs typically, uh, that will work its way through to more demand for those properties. And I think that's going to be another, uh, I guess, factor, not just for those that are looking for a rental property, mm. but also looking for a property to live in, to so, purchase. Yeah. So what you're really saying, and you'll be comfortable with this being an economist, is that the coronavirus and the economic uh, business response where by people are working from home yes. is going to lead to a structural change in the property sector that people are going to be saying to their boss, for example, you know, I, I want to work from home three days a week. Are you comfortable with that? The boss says yes. Therefore, I can buy a house at Campbelltown or Penrith. Yes. I'm saying two days we're after coming to the city. The other three, I'm home with my kids and family and whatever, and it's a, a much better life for me. And even those business couples, Peter, um, that are struggling with each of them, I guess, uh, at work to have the room to be able to work effectively, yeah. uh, might think, well, maybe a four bedroom home in uh, the outer suburbs, the western suburbs or the southwest mm. might be the solution to our to our problem. Mm. Uh, and I think that's going to create that change in terms of uh, locational demand in Sydney. Uh, particularly, and uh, I think that that's going to put upward pressure, not just on rents as we're seeing at the moment in the rental market, but also for house prices. And of course, the west, uh, the western suburbs in Sydney has also benefited from, you know, the drive to create that second CBD in Melbourne 
in, in Sydney, I'm sorry, in Parramatta, mm. uh, and all the infrastructure that's being built around that second CBD, that Parramatta uh, uh, precinct, and of course, Badgerys Creek, which is creating commercial demand uh, once we get all the, the freight and logistics uh, connections to that, uh, that new airport. So I think that uh, uh, not only, I guess, the underlying demand drivers we knew were rising for Western suburbs, but the coronavirus is producing shifts in demand in terms of the type of properties that are, uh, uh, are in demand and also the fact that we don't have to be as close, perhaps workers don't have to be as close to the CBD uh, as they used to in terms of their um, uh, their work location. Mm -hmm. So uh, look out for the western suburbs. Ben. Yeah, and so I guess the, the interesting implication as well is that uh, on, a, on a, a per city basis, if Sydney becomes the model for other cities as well, that we might see the city price pretty well just go sideways or a little bit up but within the, those city prices there will be those suburbs that will have a significant boom and they're going to be in, in more price effective or more affordable areas. Well look what we've seen is, is, is a, a cataclysmic change in our work, uh, in our, our perceptions of how we work and where we work Peter uh, and this was, this was evolving slowly but this has been just a, a real full stop to what we have been moving towards anyway. Uh, and that means that uh, supply hasn't really, uh, or doesn't in the shorter term, match these significant shifts in demand. Mm. So what we'll see is what's, what we have in terms of existing properties, uh, we may see a shortage of these types of properties, larger homes in outer suburban areas. And of course, that'll mean upward pressure on prices. Will this happen in Sydney and Melbourne? Uh, sorry, Brisbane and Melbourne? Well, I think that we, we, we need to be a little circumspect about the different markets, but there's no doubt, Peter, that when we look at, uh, and I model uh, vacancy rates, not just overall vacancy rates for dwellings, but I uh, separate them into houses and units. Uh, and there's no doubt that while vacancy rates for units, particularly in Melbourne and Sydney, are, are, are over 5%, we're seeing the uh, in most capital city markets, vacancy rates for houses are falling generally. Um, and this is a trend which is, I guess, too consistent with our issues with the coronavirus uh, to ignore. And mm. I think that that's showing, again, that uh, Australia-wide, that we're moving away from our traditional sense of having to either work or be close to the CBD, uh, and that we now can think about living an outer suburban lifestyle. Yeah. You, you should listen to my podcast with Bernard Salt last week who virtually said exactly the same thing. Oh, wow. There you go. Great minds think alike. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, the, and the point he made was that, you know, things that, you, that used to be in big demand, like living in the uh, inner city, the urban yeah. areas where you had trendy little co coffee shops and restaurants where we, we sat close to each other, Parisian style, is going to be just less attractive as a consequence of the coronavirus which means we need more space in our combo house office um, dwelling, which yeah. is, is going to be, uh, I guess, a fertile ground for those developers and builders and designers who think outside the square and start providing that type of a dwelling mm. uh, in affordable areas, which is obviously areas which have more land 
available um, to, to, you know, to satisfy this, this change in demand, which has happened quite quickly, of course, Peter. Mm. And that's the real issue here. And, and, and if we get a sharp shift in demand, because we know demand and supply uh, don't match in real time, it can only mean higher prices going forward. And um, Sydney's a little bit skinny in terms of new housing development. It's not like Brisbane or Melbourne that mm. have those uh, broader outer suburban areas that are fertile ground for new estates, Sydney's quite constrained for that type of development. Sydney's been more a higher density destination or a higher density metropolis mm. compared to those uh, the other major capitals. So uh, again, it uh, reflects a shortage of supply and the capacity going forward to match that supply. So maybe medium density in the middle ring suburbs is something that uh, uh, governments in terms of their planning decisions and builders and developers in terms of their uh, you know, their decisions as well, will be looking at uh, more fiercely. But I, I do think that the smaller apartment market uh, has had its day, particularly mm. in Sydney and Melbourne. All right, one last thing, mate. Um, when JobKeeper gets phased out between, uh, from, from basically October through to March, are you expecting it to be a significant drag on house prices? Uh, no, Peter. I, I think that the, the issue with uh, JobKeeper will affect those that aren't really a significant factor in the market anyway. Uh, we do see that in times of economic stress that even though we get higher unemployment, it doesn't have a material impact on house prices or housing demand. Now that's normally because we have interest rate capacity. Uh, in other words, we can cut interest rates in previous downturns. We obviously have none uh, compared certainly to you know the recession of 91, 92 and the GFC. Um, but again, you know, I'm not sure we're going to have the effect in terms of the number of those uh, buyers potentially in the market being affected by losing the JobKeeper allowance. And of course, housing markets have proved again to be robust and resilient through this uh, shutdown phase. And really our labour markets, uh, again, surprised on the upside uh, in terms of its, uh, its, the way it's waged its way through uh, the shutdown period. Of course, we've still got hard yards to go. There is a lot of uncertainty regarding the change in government stimulus, but I think the government certainly has uh, the, uh, I guess, the, the the willingness to continue to support our economy and wage earners. And uh, I, I would suggest, if there was any a significant impact uh, in terms of the economics from uh, cutting JobKeeper allowances, that they would step in and uh, and offset that. Uh, there, there really is a, an obligation from our governments, and perhaps even more so from our state governments to uh, take up the baton and to continue to, uh, you know, get us uh, recovering from this uh, disastrous environment. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Peter. That's Andrew Wilson from My Housing Market.